we are. We're in the 15th chapter of Romans. Who's happy about that? Raise your hand. <laughs> okay, one more chapter to go next week, and then your springtime will be free. And so um, be sure to come next week because you want to know that you finished this. Finishing is always a good feeling to know that you wrapped it up. You stayed the course. So this morning, if I were to give this chapter a title, chapter 15, it would be that the Christian life centers on strengthening others. I'll say that once more. The Christian life centers on strengthening others. And the reason I would give it that title is because from every angle in the 15th chapter of Romans, Paul focuses, he does change topics one after another, but it is really about believers strengthening each other in their faith. So with that thought in mind, um, let's pray as we get started this morning. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. And Lord, now I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in Romans 15, Paul finishes up this discussion that we started last week that was about the stronger and the weaker believers. And he says in verses 1 and 2, and I'm going to read this week from the NLT, he says, We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. Now let's remind ourselves of what things it is that some of these believers are feeling sensitive about. They're feeling sensitive primarily about things that revolve around food and drink. And for them, the reason that that was so important is because there were really big differences in the Jewish and the Gentile cultures in the way that people ate, the foods that they ate, um, the way they indulged. And this went all the way back to the Mosaic law and things that were perceived to be pure and impure. It had a lot to do with food sacrificed to idols in the Gentile culture and who believed that it was still okay to take that food and eat it. And then it had a lot to do with just indulgence and overindulgence. So there were all kinds of issues for them around those topics. Now, we don't live in first century Rome. We live in 2022 in Charlotte, North Carolina. So how does this relate to us? And Kristen did a great job last week of introducing all of this to us, but we still have to conclude this week in chapter 15 the answer to this question, what does God want me to do with other believers who don't think exactly like I do? Because most of the time, I'm right. <laughs> Are they really okay with God if they're making different choices than I am about entertainment, about lifestyle, about child rearing, about education, about drinking alcohol, about the way they worship? What about parents who insist that homeschooling is the only option? 
What about the young couple that I met last Sunday morning at church who aren't married, but they're living together? What about the fact that I just don't think our worship music is what it ought to be? What about my friend's view on missing church for kids' sporting events? See, we can come up with a really long list of things that we can disagree about, and a really long list of things that we have to decide, does this have to be addressed right at this moment, or is this something that needs to be addressed a little further down the road when people have come and developed a stronger faith? There's a lot of little pieces and parts to this, um, these questions. But here's the bottom line. Paul tells us to do this. He tells us to understand our personal position on these issues by examining Scripture and by praying for God's wisdom and settle it within our own hearts. And then he tells us to be more than willing to be in relationship with other believers even when their views are different than ours are, to be willing to share and discuss these issues, but to do it distinctly from a place of love and harmony. Now, I'm really hoping that two of the things that Kristen said last week stuck with you, and here's what they are. First of all, she reminded us that at different times, we are the stronger believer, and at other times, we are the weaker, just depending on how our knowledge and understanding of things has developed. And even at the moments when we think that we have it all figured out, we are still required to have a teachable spirit and to be willing to hear and learn, whether that is from a person older than we are, whether it's from someone who is our peer, or not unusually, maybe from someone who is younger than we are and sees things a little bit differently than we do. And then the second thing that Kristen emphasized was that there are things within Scripture, things within the Christian faith that are disputable and indisputable. There are the things when we say disputable that are the non-essential ingredients of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then the indisputable are the things that are essential to faith in Jesus Christ. Things like the gospel and the truth of it. Things like the fact that when we come to Jesus in faith, we are saved by grace because of his sacrifice. The fact that we are indwelt then by the Holy Spirit and he is the one who lives in us to instruct us, to teach us, to build in us an understanding of what it means to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, we have this group of things that we cannot compromise on. But then over here, we have a host of other things that as believers, <clears throat> it is individually... <clears throat> excuse me, our responsibility to pray over these things, to read the scripture, to come to a determination of what God is saying to us personally about how we need to address those issues. Now, I'm guessing 
that each one of you right now, if you took the time to sit for five, 10, 15 minutes and think back over your life, you could go back to the time when you became a Christian, when you first believed in Jesus, and then you could trace that forward to today and you could realize how much some of your own personal views and convictions about issues in the world around you have changed. And so in this chapter, that's actually kind of what we all have to do to reach the conclusion about all of this. We have to be willing to say and go back through in these first 14 verses, okay, what does it mean for me to know what I believe and still be sensitive to others? And then in the second part of this chapter, we're going to see how Paul encourages the Romans. But first of all, let me just finish up a little bit on this topic of being considerate in relationships to other believers. And that's how I would name it. <clears throat> how is it that we are considerate in those relationships? How is it that we do what Paul says in those first two verses of being responsible about the fact that some people are sensitive to certain things. Now, a little bit of personal history. I grew up in a very conservative denomination, and the emphasis in that sentence should be on the word very, okay? Like capital letters, very. We had a lot of rules. We had a lot of don'ts. We didn't have a lot of do's. We had a lot of don'ts. And many of the people in the church where I grew up as a girl believed with all their hearts that they had arrived at the correct view of all practices of worship and living for Jesus. They were pretty certain that they were the only ones going to heaven. I'm not exaggerating, ladies. And... Um, they were certain as they looked out on other denominations, other people who certainly called themselves believers and Christians, they were pretty certain that they had figured things out that those other groups had not been able to figure out. Now, there were a couple of problems with this thinking. The first one was that it began to turn into salvation by what we did and salvation by following the rules as opposed to salvation through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the second problem with it was that there was a real lack of true understanding between what was essential in the Word of God and what really was non-essential. So when I reached the wise old age of 13, my parents <clears throat> made a decision to send me to an interdenominational Christian school. This was a very new experience for me because I had been in a pretty isolated little environment. My parents were highly criticized for this decision because I was being, you know, thrown to the wolves. But what happened there was that I began to know and understand fellow students and teachers who had relationships with Jesus that far exceeded anything that I had known or understood. These people were from every denomination that you and I could name right now. We didn't all worship the same way. 
But the truth was that all of those people agreed on the fundamental gospel of Jesus Christ. And I was awakened. I mean, is the word that I guess I would use. God used middle school and high school for me to begin reshaping my thinking and to really start to give me a love for the unity of the overall body of Christ. Now, I have to tell you that while that was going on, he was also using me as a huge thorn in the side of the elder who taught the senior high school Sunday school class at my church because I would come in prepared to debate him. And those of you who know my personality know that debate is probably the right word. Um, Debate him on all kinds of topics, everything from issues to salvation on down the line. Now, what I didn't realize at the time, ladies, that all of that was going on inside of me was that God was really starting to educate me on the principles of Romans 14 and 15. He was really starting to prepare me for things that were ahead of me in my life that I had no idea of. But he began to embed in me the fact that his desire was for us to understand Christian liberty while still supporting and loving each other. And that we could be believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether or not every single non-essential detail in our lives lined up. And every year since then, there have been people in my life, literally, I would say every year, who have challenged me, questioned me, posed something new in front of me that has required me to rethink, what do I really believe about X? How do I know that this is what God is confirming in my mind? I don't think that this is a process where we land one day when we're 35 or 40 years old and we think, okay, I've now got all of this settled. I just don't think it works that way. I think no matter what our age and no matter what stage we are in life, the Holy Spirit continues to work on us, continues to reveal to us the truth of Scripture and the place where we need to land, and it may be different at one point than it is at another. Now, your story is probably not exactly the same as mine, but I guarantee you that you have a story of this kind of progression going on in your life, and it's been going on for a while and it will continue to go on for a while. So I want us to just reach the bottom line here in these first 13 or 14 verses of Romans 15 by just kind of taking the principles that Paul is pointing out right here and jotting them down so that we know exactly what he's saying is the way for us to manage this. In verses 1 and 2, he says, be considerate, and recognize the sensitivity that others may have. That's pretty straightforward. And then he says, don't be consumed with pleasing yourself. In other words, if your views and what you're imposing on others is only coming out of your own selfishness, you are on the wrong track. 
It may mean at one moment we have to give something up. It may mean on another day that we have to be willing to have a very open, honest conversation about an issue. In verses three and four, he tells us that when we live in consideration of others, we live as Jesus did because he did not live to please himself. There's our example. And then after verses three and four, let me just read those two. And then I wanna point something out to you. Verses three and four say, for even Christ didn't live to please himself. As the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. Such things were written in the scripture long ago to teach us, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. He's saying a couple of important things here. First of all, he's reminding us that there have been insults and disagreements throughout time, and who carries those burdens? Jesus carries those burdens. We're not the only one that wrestles with this, but what he knows is that we need his support. We need for him to intercede for us. We need for him to show us the way when we're in the midst of that. And then Paul goes on right here, and he quotes um, a number of things from the Old Testament. And as he does this, he says in verses 5 and 6, as he begins to introduce this, May God, who gives this patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other as is for followers of Jesus Christ. Now, think about those words for just a minute. May God, who gives you patience and encouragement, help you live in partial harmony, a little bit of harmony. No, no, no. Complete harmony with one another as is fitting for followers of Jesus Christ. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the end result of all of this, what Paul is saying we are working toward, is that when we come together in unity and harmony, in spite of our differences on non-essential issues, what we are doing is we are opening the door to reflect God's glory and worship him with one voice. One voice. Now, in 7 and through 12, he says this. Therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He also came so that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. And then Paul quotes a number of Psalms in the next few verses. But first of all, the reminder right here is to this church, listen, I came for the Jews because I am fulfilling what God promised them, the covenant of God from the beginning. I'm fulfilling that. And Jesus came to the Gentiles so that they would glorify him for the mercy that he had shown to them. 
And in these quoted Psalms, what Paul has done is he has brought together Old Testament scripture where David and the writer of the Psalms were describing that both the Jews and the Gentiles, because of their belief, were praising God through the unity that comes between believers, there is a common life of praise and worship with one mouth and one mind. That is a really big ideas lady. If you, idea ladies. If you missed that in this week's lesson, write that down. That's a big deal. That the end goal for us is to see that when we can look past these non-essentials, and be unified, what we are doing as believers is we are forming one choir before the Lord. And then, if you take one verse away from this chapter this week, let it be verse 13. This is an awesome scripture. It says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace, because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to stop on this verse just for a minute, and I want you to see everything that is in those few words. God is the source of your hope, not anything else around you, not a human relationship, not a job, not where you live, not the security of knowing the world is at peace, none of the things. God is the source of our hope. And when we are filled, as it says in this verse, with joy and peace, he tells us that the strength that we have in our relationships with one another will be completed because he will give us patience and acceptance and love for each other. And then finally, he says, you overflow with confidence. Confidence in ourselves, in our own abilities? No. Godly confidence. Knowing that we are being given through the power of the Holy Spirit, the fruits and the gifts that we need to live as a unified body of believers. That is a big verse right there. And now Paul turns a corner. Now he's settled how to be considerate and live in good relationship. Are we all good on this topic? If you're not good, raise your hand. Okay. You're a very cooperative bunch. All right. And next, the, the second thing that really shows in this chapter is everything that Paul writes from here on is about a willingness to obey and to move forward for God in his work. So the first thing that he does is he affirms and he encourages the church in Rome. He says, I am fully convinced, my dear brothers and sisters, that you are full of goodness. Wouldn't you like to hear Paul write that to us today and tell us that we are full of goodness? He says, you know these things so well, you can teach each other all about them. Even so, I have been bold enough to write about some of these points, knowing that all you need is this reminder. 
For by God's grace, I am a special messenger from Christ Jesus to you Gentiles. I bring you the good news so that I might present you as an acceptable offering to God made holy by the Holy Spirit. So I have reason to be enthusiastic about all Christ Jesus has done in me in my service to God. Now, what Paul is saying to them is, you know what? You're, you're doing well. You know what you need to know. And you know it well enough that you can share it and teach it to others. He's affirming. He's commending them for the way that the Holy Spirit has already been at work in their lives. It's kind of like he's saying to them, you know, when you first met Jesus, you, your house needed to be cleaned out. You were kind of dirty on the inside. The windows needed washing. The floors needed swept. There was a lot of things in there that ne you needed to purge and get rid of. But now the Holy Spirit is in you. You've got new furniture. Your floors are clean. The kitchen is sparkling. You're looking good. And what I'm seeing in you is genuine goodness and the ability to encourage and hold each other up. He affirms that they're prepared to teach. And then he reminds them in 16 to 21 that his only boasting has been in the mission that God gave him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And basically what Paul goes on to say in the next few verses is, I've completed that mission in a really large area where I felt God wanted me to go. He has gone from Jerusalem to a funny little town whose name I'm not sure how to pronounce, Illyricum, I think. Um, and that is on the northern part of Italy. So that's how far he's gone. Jerusalem all the way over to northern Italy. And what Paul is saying to them is, I want to form a partnership with you so that your church in Rome can become the home base that I need to begin to move further east to take the gospel to Spain. Now, in verse 25, there's a really key point here. Paul says, but before I come, I have to take a detour to Jerusalem. I have to deliver a gift there. And what Paul is taking to the, Jer the Jerusalem church is a financial gift from Gentile churches in the Macedonia area. And the reason that this is so significant and that he is taking it himself and emphasizing it is that when Paul first went out to teach the Gentiles, it was the Jerusalem church who supported him in going to do that. And it was the faith that God had promised to the Jews to begin with that Paul was then going to share to the, with the Gentiles. So this group of Gentile churches in the Macedonia area, they felt a, um, what do I want to say, like a heart's obligation to give back to this beginning church in Jerusalem to say to them, thank you not only for supporting Paul as he came to us, but thank you for the truth that originated with you that has come to us. So Paul is very anxious to deliver this gift to them because he wants the church in Jerusalem to feel this unity 
and this love coming back to them from some of the Gentile churches. Now, when Paul says all of this in Romans 15, what he doesn't know at this moment is that his trip in going from Jerusalem to Rome, once he gets to Jerusalem and delivers that gift, what he doesn't know at this point in time is that that trip will be a near disaster. And if you go back and look at Acts 21 to 28, you can reread all of the things that happened to Paul between the writing of these words, his arrival in Jerusalem, and him finally getting to Rome, and it is a bunch of pretty awful stuff. He is arrested, he is put on trial, he is in the middle of riots, he is beaten, he is um, sent out on a ship thinking that maybe he will finally get somewhere near Rome, and in the middle of all that, there is a shipwreck. So in Acts 21 through 28, you really begin to wonder, is he ever going to get there? And he does get there, but when he arrives in Rome, he will be there under very different conditions than he imagined because he will arrive there under arrest, chained to a guard. But here's the interesting news. In Acts 28, 30 and 31, it tells us that Paul lives in Rome for two years under house arrest. He cannot leave the place where he's living but it tells us that while he is there, he welcomed all who visited him and boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God, teaching everyone who came about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. I love that that's the way that story comes around. And it's also really good to know that when Paul arrived in Rome, even under the circumstances that he did, there were believers from the Roman church who were there to meet him. Now, in the last verses of this chapter, <clears throat> Paul is really dreaming about the future. He doesn't know all those things are going to happen to him. But in verses 28 through 33, he says this. He says, as soon as I've delivered this money and completed this good deed... Of theirs, I will come to see you on my way to Spain, and I am sure that when I come, God will richly bless our time together. Now think back what I just told you it says in the 28th chapter of Acts. He boldly proclaimed the kingdom of God and welcomed everyone who came to see him. And then he writes, Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to join in my struggle to pray praying to God for me. Little did he know how he needed those prayers. Do this because of your love for me, given to you by the Holy Spirit. Pray that I will be rescued from those in Judea who refused to obey God, those who arrested him. Pray also that the believers there will be willing to accept the donation I am taking to Jerusalem then by the will of God, I will be able to come to you with a joyful heart and we will be an encouragement to each other. And now may God who gives us his peace be with you all, amen. So the circumstances ended up being di very different than we imagined, but everything that he asked them to pray for became reality.
Now, I want you to notice one thing about Paul's words at the end of this chapter. Paul feels like he has finished this mission that he was on to preach the gospel from Jerusalem into this area in the northern part of Italy. He's covered a lot of territory, but he's not focusing backwards on that. He, the next thing he says is, my dream for the future is I'm going to Spain, and I'm going to preach in Spain because there are some places over there that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I just want us, as we finish up today, to think about that for a moment and ask ourselves this question. Do we do that same thing? Do we remember? I was very uh, convicted by this as I studied this this week. Do I remember? Do we remember that although God has used us in the past or has responsibilities for us right at this moment in time, that he also has plans for our future? Do we dream as and do we ask the Lord, what is it that you want me to do next? What is the Spain that is out there in front of me? Paul's covered a lot of territory, and we've covered a lot of territory this morning because we've gone from individual relationships and the unity of the church to Paul's bold plan for the future. But there's one thing that holds true in the midst of all of this. Let's go back to where we started. The Christian life centers on strengthening others, whether it's God's plan for us or the way we see it in his plan for Paul. We walk with each other even when we don't agree on every issue. He tells us, be ready to lift up those who are sensitive, teaching each other when the opportunity arises, sharing the gospel, and then finally dreaming of the future. And it's all about strengthening others. Let me pray for us before you go to your groups. Father, we thank you this morning for um, everything that you teach us through the life and the writings of Paul. It's amazing, Lord, what the way that you used this one man, even centuries and centuries later, to share your truth with us. And we praise you and we thank you for your wisdom and your knowledge in doing that. So, Lord, today we just ask that you will challenge our hearts and our minds, that we will um, think through very carefully how we strengthen and support the other believers around us. And we will also, Lord, ask you to show us what you have in mind for us for the future. And we pray all of this in the precious and mighty name of Jesus. Amen.